We started a couple of weeks ago going through the book of Revelation. We've made our way over to chapter 6. John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. It said, come up here and I'll show you things that must happen hereafter. He experienced the type of the, of the rapture. You would understand that if you were in one location here on the earth and you heard a voice saying, come up here. And that voice was coming from heaven. You'd expect a change of location. Well, that's exactly what he had. And so in heaven, he saw first God sitting on the throne. He saw the rainbow around the throne. He saw the four living creatures with eyes all around their heads and six wings apiece. He saw the four and twenty elders clothed in white with crowns of gold upon their heads. And he saw the crystal sea, which represents the church. He saw a book in the hand of God that had seven seals on it. It was written on front and back. And an angel, a strong angel. It's it's amazing to me how the Bible keeps speaking of strong angels in heaven. I don't think there are any weak ones. So the indication that they're strong angels must be those that have a specific task or a work to do regarding the end. But anyway, a strong angel cried out, who is worthy to open the book? And nobody was found. John starts to break down and cry. But another angel says, don't weep. There's one that's worthy. He looks up and he sees before the throne of God in the midst of the crystal sea. A lamb as if if it had been slain. And it's declared he's worthy. To open the seals. So chapter 6 begins the opening of the seals. We covered a couple of them. But we'll go through them real quickly. Just for the sake of continuity. Verse 1. And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals. And heard as it were the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. No arrows just a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, this has got to be the Antichrist. Some people have said, well, it's the rider on the white horse. and the, uh, So it must be Jesus that was given to him to have a crown. But folks, Jesus is not going to be given any more crowns. He's already gotten them all. And there's nothing for him to conquer. He's already conquered. This is the Antichrist. Now, let me make a statement here, and I'll go back to it a couple of times this morning, I believe. At least I intend to. It's, uh, it's easy for us to assume that the, the seals and the, the continuity of the things that are referred to and revealed in the book of Revelation is a chronology or a timeline, and it's not. There are things that are shown here in these uh, first few chapters that cover the entirety of the time, the seven years that make up the tribulation period. And then later on in the, the, uh, the, the letter, it breaks it down as far as what things happen at what times. Not everything, but some things are identified as far as time is concerned. So it's easy for us to look at these seven seals as they're open and say, well, this happens first, then this happens, and this happens. And that's not the case. 
These seven seals cover everything that will happen during the seven years of tribulation. It's kind of an overview or a summary. The first thing that is mentioned is the Antichrist, the revealing of the Antichrist. We looked before over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe it was, where it says the Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world and was when Paul was here, but he can't be revealed until the thing that's holding him back is taken out of the way. Some people have surmised that that was the Holy Ghost, but I would submit to you folks that the Holy Ghost is still at work during the tribulation period because people are still getting saved. Well, if it's not the Holy Ghost holding them back, what is it? It's the church. That's fascinating to me. As disorganized, as powerless, as disjointed and fractured as the church, the body of Christ here on the earth presents themselves to be, there is enough power in the church to hold back the Antichrist, which is the devil's finest work. His greatest work of evil. But once that's taken away, once the church is taken away and caught up into heaven, as we said, the four and twenty elders, which represent the, which are representatives of the church, and the crystal sea, which is the church itself, are caught up and standing before the throne of God. Now the devil's free to do what he wants to do on the earth without hindrance. So this is the Antichrist. This first seal opens the, the door for the Antichrist to be revealed. Then it says the second seal was opened in verse 3. And I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. The second horse or second seal releases war. We talked about the war that begins the tribulation. In Ezekiel chapter 38. But that's not the only one that takes place. First half of the tribulation. The first three and a half years. The uh, Antichrist presents himself. And and, uh, uh, pretends to be a man of peace. But at the three and a half year mark. Or just thereafter. He then becomes a man of war. So this war. The seal that opens the door to war. Is throughout the tribulation. And not just the beginning. And it's not over. When the. One day, defeat of Russia and the coalition armies takes place as uh, described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Verse 5, and when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. This third seal opens the door to famine. Now I want you to realize that it's not a worldwide famine. And I want you to also realize it doesn't mean there's no food. But there will just be food shortages. Notice the last part of the the verse that we read. It says "See see that you not hurt the oil and the wine. Well oil and wine can be a type of a couple of things. It can be a type of the presence of the Holy Ghost. Well, that doesn't seem to fit. The writer wouldn't have power over the Holy Ghost. So if it doesn't mean the Holy Ghost, then what does it mean when it says, See thou not hurt the oil and the wine? Well, the oil and the wine must refer to staples or basic necessities. 
So what it's telling us is during the tribulation period, there are going to be food shortages. But I'll show you in a minute, it won't be worldwide. Most of the, the um, events that take place that are described in the book of Revelation refer to and affect most greatly the Mediterranean countries, those countries, the European and the Middle East countries that, that surround the Mediterranean Sea, along with some of the northern African continent. It's pretty much that circle that we know of around the Aegean and the Mediterranean seas. So we know that in that area particularly, there'll be food shortages. That's what the, the, the seal refers to. Verse 7, and when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given to them, notice this next phrase, over the fourth part of the earth. Not over the whole earth. Over the fourth part of the earth. To kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. So you can see that this fourth seal rider is going to be working with the second seal rider, which is war. But there'll be other things that bring death as well, not just the wars themselves. And power was given unto him, unto them, over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. The idea that there's going to be some kind of world, one world government is not supported by the Bible. Now there will be a, a fourth part of the earth government. The Antichrist will, will rule and reign over what the Bible describes as the fourth part of the earth. But not a worldwide thing. It's obvious that the Bible leaves out, the book of Revelation leaves out almost all reference to the Western world. Now, that would make sense because at the time that the book was written, if Jesus had said, now there's this place called America, John would have known what in the world he was talking about. What we can glean from the few things that are intimated and, and referred to in the scripture is that America is not a major player in any of these events. Now, we can speculate as to why that is. And maybe we might be right, but maybe we'd be wrong on that too. So I don't think a lot of speculation is worthwhile. But just suffice it to say that America is not a major player. But here it's talking about a fourth part of the earth will be basically controlled by and affected by the work of the Antichrist and God's resistance against him. Verse 9, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants... Notice that phrase, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Who are these people? 
Well, here's another proof that this is talking about the activities throughout the tribulation period, throughout the seven years, and not just in a timeline. These have got to be the tribulation martyrs. Because remember, when the church is raptured, the dead in Christ arise. They rise first. And then we meet them together with the Lord in the air. So all the martyrs that have been, those that have been killed or martyred prior to the tribulation period have already been reunited with their redeemed bodies and they're in heaven. So this has got to be talking about the tribulation martyrs. So from our perspective, John is in heaven. The tribulation has just begun. And these seals are being opened. It's like hitting the fast forward button on your DVR. Because it's showing us things that happen throughout those seven year period. Rather than just John being able to say, well, I just left the earth. How is this possible? And if we try to interpret these things with that kind of linear thinking, then we become confused. So the fifth seal is the tribulation martyrs. And then the sixth seal, verse 12, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as a sackcloth of hair, and the moon is, became as blood. And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Folks, I want you to understand something. There's coming a point in time where all those that claim to be great here on the earth are going to run like children from the face of God. And they said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Then Mark, uh, um, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29, Jesus is responding to the disciples' questions. And they said, when shall these things be? He just said that the temple will be torn down, not one stone will be left upon another. And so they ask him some questions. They say, when will these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end? One of the things that Jesus identifies in Matthew 24, verse, 30, uh, verse 29, I believe it is. He says that after all of these things that he's referred to before, the sun shall become black and the moon become blood red. And that's the last day of the tribulation, the great day of the wrath of God. So the sixth seal is talking about something that happens in the last 24 hours of the seven-year period that we know of as the tribulation. Here's another proof that these are things that are talked about that will dominate those seven years and not just a point one, point two, point three thing. Now I want to come back to this. I want to go on into chapter seven. But I want to come back and conclude this morning with this sixth seal. Because I want to show you some things that are relevant to us regarding this great terrible day of the Lord. The, 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 what's called the day of his wrath. All of the tribulation is known as the wrath of God, but that last day is a real killer. 
I'm not sure if that's a play on words, but you know what I mean. Chapter 7, and after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel. Notice verse 2, he's talking about the work of angels. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, until we, notice it's a work of angels, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and they were sealed in 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Judah. And then it lists over the next, uh, well, down through verse 8, it mentions the, the different tribes. Now, the... Uh, I'll just make my one mention of the uh, the tribes that are spoken of here. It's not the original list. The original 12 tribes of Judah, or 12 tribes of Israel, I should say, were the sons of Jacob. The list is altered in that Dan and Ephraim, and Ephraim and Manasseh came about because Joseph gives up his place. For two of his sons. He gets a double portion. Because of his service to God. And the things that he committed himself to. And so. The twelve tribes. The list. The original list of twelve tribes is changed. Dan and Ephraim. Are replaced. By Levi and Joseph. Now the only indication we have. Of why that might be. Is something that the Bible tells us. About both of those two tribes. Both Dan and Ephraim. Specifically Ephraim, there came a point in the Old Testament where God said, leave Ephraim alone, he's joined himself to his idols. Well, if you study anything on the the other tribes and see the tribe of Dan was also given to idolatry in a much, much greater degree than any of the other 12 with the exception of Ephraim. And because of that declaration that God made in the Old Testament, Ephraim is removed from the list. Dan is removed from the list and replaced with Levi and Joseph. Now, you remember, Levi was the the tribe that the priesthood came from. And they weren't supposed to have any inheritance. Their inheritance was from God directly. They didn't get an inheritance in the promised land when they entered in because the priesthood was supposed to be supported by the people. But in this list, Levi is represented with 12,000 to make up the 144. This 144,000, according to Ezekiel chapter 9, seem to be those that were part of the army on the first day of the tribulation when the Russian coalition armies invade Israel. And apparently they're saved by the angels. Apparently there's something that takes place by the work of the angels that brings them into the kingdom of God. Notice the angels say it's their job to seal them. There's no mention of Jesus. No mention of redemption at this point. Later on they'll sing a song saying that they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But at this point the only thing that's mentioned is the angels. Now one of the things that we need to keep in mind 
is that you remember in the Old Testament, Daniel talked about his 70 weeks, the vision that he had of 70 weeks. He talked about the break between the 69th and the 70th week. The 70th week is the tribulation, the seven-year period of tribulation. But between the 69th and the 70th week, there was a pause. There's no mention made in the scripture of how long that pause is. But the, the thing that brought about that pause was when Jesus came to the earth. So the break between the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel's, as they were prophesied, is the church age. And as soon as the church is removed from the earth, and what we know of as the rapture, then the 70th week begins, the countdown begins. They're back on the clock, so to speak. Well, during the church age, the Bible says that people are saved by the foolishness of preaching. Foolishness according to man's understanding. Truth according to the scripture. Apparently, when the church leaves the earth, everything changes. Because if the 144,000 have to be saved by somebody preaching to them, who's left to preach? Would you sign up for that? God says, now I need somebody to stay back and preach so that 144,000 can get saved. So that they can do their work during the tribulation. So how about you staying behind and experiencing the tribulation for me? Not me, man. I say, Lord, is there another way? Well, apparently there was another way. The ceiling of the 144,000 is left to the angels. The last half of the tribulation specifically, it says that angels fly through the air preaching the gospel. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that works. But that would be something to see, would it not? So apparently it's the work of angels. Perhaps it's because they see the hand of God in the defeat of Russia and the, the armies that come with them in that 24-hour period. I'm sure that would influence a lot of people. But at any rate, the angels have a specific work to bring in the 144,000. Then it skips in verse 9 to, a, to another event that takes place about three and a half years after the 144,000 come into the kingdom of God and begin their works. Now I want you to notice a couple of things. Go back to verse 3. The angel says, hurt to the other four angels, holding back the wind. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God. The 144,000 are called servants, not sons. Now that's not to say they don't get born again, they do. But they're referred to as servants. Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Verse 9, after this, after 144,000 began their work on the earth. After this I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people, and tongues, stood before the throne, and stood before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and about the poor beasts, and fell before the throne on their faces. And worshiped God. 
saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be under our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered me, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And John says, Beats me. That's what Sir Thou Knowest means. You're asking me? Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of the great tribulation, which have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him night and day in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, which indicates there might have been hunger on the earth. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So we see that this great multitude that's spoken of beginning in verse 9, it's beyond number, it's from every kindred, every tribe, every nation, and so forth. We see this great multitude came out of the tribulation. Now these are the scriptures which support... Some people's idea that the church is going to go through the tribulation period, or at least the first half of the tribulation period. If we fast forward a little bit into what the the rest of the letter tells us, the rest of John's vision reveals, we find when the uh, the timeline begins to be explained to us a little bit later that this great multitude is still on the earth at the three and a half year mark, the halfway period of the tribulation. Probably a couple of months after that. Not, we don't know exactly, but probably a couple of months after that. But we know at the halfway point, the great multitude is there. It's one of the targets of the uh, Antichrist's wrath when he stops being a man of peace or stops pretending to be a man of peace and receives a supernatural empowering from the enemy to become a man of war. So we know the great multitude is still there at the three and a half year mark, the halfway part. Point. And so for this reason, a lot of people say, well, that's got to be the church that are caught up. But I want you to notice some differences between this great multitude and the church. There's no meeting Jesus in the air. John's in heaven. The four and 20 elders are already there, which represent the church. They're already performing their work and their service before the throne of God. There's no dead being raised, like Paul told us would happen. There's no meeting Jesus in the air. And notice it says white robes were given unto them. Let me read it again to make sure you see it. It says in verse 9 that they were clothed with white robes. But verse 14 says... These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes. Is that what happens when you get born again? Do you wash your robes? Now the Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. You get a new spirit. Ezekiel 36 talks about that. A new spirit will I put within them and I'll put my spirit in theirs. There's no washing of robes. There's no refurbishing. So this can't be the church. Notice again in verse 9, it talks about the last thing it mentions is it says there are palms in their hands. Now, who worships God with palms? 
Does the church do that? No, but distinctly believe that's a part of Jewish worship. This great, tribula- this great multitude that comes out of the tribulation are those that are saved through the 144,000. And they are raptured or caught up at the midpoint of the tribulation. Some people will say, well, when's the church going to be raptured? Some people say at the beginning of the tribulation. Some people say in the middle of the tribulation. Some people say at the end of the tribulation. Well, folks, let me ask you a question. Who says there's only one rapture? Find me anywhere it says the church will be raptured and that's it. In fact, the church is raptured before the tribulation begins. The great multitude is raptured right about just after the halfway point of the tribulation. But even in the the last day, or within the last three and a half days of the tribulation period, the two witnesses are caught up into heaven in full view of everybody, probably with TV coverage. There's been a lot of raptures. Enoch was raptured. Elijah was raptured. See, we get so linear in our thinking, we think it's just one way and can only be just one way. God has a habit of catching people up. Especially when it comes to protecting his people from his his enemy. So we see a marked difference between the great multitude and their appearance in heaven and what Paul said would happen when the church is caught away. So it can't be the church. But who are they? They've got to be people that were saved during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. They came out of the tribulation and and if the church is raptured before the tribulation, there's no Christians left on the earth. Governments will still run. News media will still be here. All the earth systems will still operate, which shows you who knows God and who doesn't. But the church is gone. Now, three and a half years into the tribulation period, a great multitude is caught up, snatched away right from out, right out from under the nose of the Antichrist, who has just delivered great threatenings and declared that he's going to do away with them and and kill them. And God snatches them up in a moment of time. Now I want you to turn back with me to to Joel chapter 2. As we said before, these six Seals, the seventh seal isn't open until chapter 8. These six seals obviously refer to the seven-year period of tribulation rather than one thing happening right after another. Joel's prophecy has a lot to do with and, and covers the same last day of the tribulation where the sun becomes black and the moon turns to blood let me start reading in verse 28 
Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now the word afterward is not a wrong translation, but it's difficult to, to pinpoint what's being said. Afterward literally means at the end of time. And it's not that the word afterward doesn't convey that. But again, if we think of things happening one, two, three, four, five, then a lot of times we may miss the import of what's being said. The prophecy is this is what will happen at the end of time. As we said, Matthew twenty four twenty nine identifies it as the last day of the tribulation period. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Notice that phrase. Servants and handmaids. Not sons and daughters. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Can you tell me what the difference is in Mount Zion and Jerusalem? Geographically, Zion was the temple mount. But Paul says, writing to the church in the book of Hebrews, but you're not coming to Mount Sinai, which represents the law of Moses. You're coming to Mount Zion. He identifies that as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he may be referring, I believe he is referring to two different things. It shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion, the church... And in Jerusalem, for Israel, shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now notice he talks about, beginning in verse 28, and at the end of time, here's what's going to happen. I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. This is what Peter referred to on the day of Pentecost. He said, remember what Joel prophesied. Well, what did Joel prophesy? Joel prophesied the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the end of the tribulation. He's saying the time of the Holy Ghost to be poured out, the time of the work of the Holy Ghost, began with the church age, Acts chapter 2, and ends with tribulation. And up until that point in time, anybody can be saved. So he's talking about a window or a time period whereby the work of the Holy Ghost will be done. Part of that work is for the church. But once the tribulation period begins, he talks about it for the servants and the handmaids. Israel. Those who will come out of the tribulation as a great multitude. Zechariah 8.23 talks about there'll come a time where people, ten men will grab a hold of a Jew, people from every nation and every tongue, and say, we want to go with you because we see God's with you. That makes up the great multitude. All the way up until the end of the tribulation period. 
Now, notice he said an afterward or at the end of time. The only reason that he would say and afterward is if he's connecting the end time events with previous events. Otherwise, he'd just say, here's what it's going to be at the end. But when he says and at the end, that's a conjunction that connects something with one thing with something else. So let's back up a little bit to verse 23 and see what he's connecting this to. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall uh, shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. Then he says in verse 28, And afterward. Now there's two ways that we need to look at this or consider this, beginning with verse 23 specifically. And that is, these things that are spoken of have definite reference to Israel becoming a nation again. At the time that Joel prophesied, Israel was scattered, they'd been conquered because of their own sin. And the idea or the hope that Israel would become a nation again was far-fetched. So it's saying very specifically that God is going to bless Israel by bringing them into their own land again. He's going to provide them with plenty. He's going to restore the years that were stolen from them through their own sin. And show himself to be their God. Well, that took place in 1948. But we also know that since the Bible refers to a lot of things for Israel specifically as symbolic for the church, who Paul says is true Israel. Paul said to to the writing to the Romans, he said, not all Israel is Israel. What he's saying very specifically there is that not everybody that's a natural descendant of Abraham qualifies for what God considers his people. His people are made up of those that accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. And not all of Israel has done that. Natural Israel. So he talks about the thing that's going to bring this about, the restoration of Israel's land, as being the former reign and the latter reign. But haven't we heard those terms used before regarding the church? James 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Well, if he's talking about brethren, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to Israel. He's not talking to the natural descendants of Israel. At least not alone. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth. Well, he's talking about Jesus being the husbandman because he's talking about him coming again. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth. And has long patience for it until, until 
until. In other words, Jesus isn't coming back until he received the early and the latter rain. Well, that's not Israel. That's talking about the church. So there's a reference in the scripture, and this is just one we could refer to others. So there's a reference to the scripture about the early and the latter rain not just being for the natural descendants of Abraham, but for the church too. Well, let's see what we can apply this to the church or how we can apply this to the church. Back to verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion. Paul said, you're not coming to Mount Sinai, but into Zion. Talking to the church. Be glad, church, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately. Well, that shows us in the book of Acts what that looked like. Interesting enough, if we were to take this literally, God said that was a moderate outpouring of the Holy Ghost. When people were healed by Peter's shadow. When thousands of people were saved on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people were saved in Acts chapter 3 when they ministered to the crippled man at the beautiful gate of the temple. God called that moderate. Now we've just had some of the heaviest rains around here that we've had in years. Our pool overflowed and came right up to the edge of our door. I believe it would have come in if I hadn't rebuked the water. (laughs) Well, what would you think if somebody said, oh, that was just a moderate rain? That's what God's doing here regarding the power of his power shown in the book of Acts. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain. The former rain and the latter rain. In other words, double rain. You'll get the moderate showers, like described in the book of Acts. But you'll also get another rain called the latter rain. And the floor shall be full of wheat. Well, the Bible says Jesus is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth. So I believe this is talking about people. The floor shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. Now wine and oil here, we see this again. This is probably a reference to spiritual things. But remember in Haggai chapter 2 that we read before, verses 6, 7, and 8. It talks about the, the glory of the Lord being greater in the last days than in the early days. God said, I'll shake everything that can be shaken. But then he says, the silver and gold are mine. And then he says, the glory of the latter house shall be greater than of the former. So don't let yourself look away from the fact that this includes physical provision as well for the church. We don't want to spiritualize things to such a degree that we miss what God's saying. Now, I'm not trying to equate one with the other. We had to pick between physical provisions And spiritual blessings, I'll take the spiritual blessings every time. But where does God ever say you can only have one of the two? You don't do that to your kids. You don't sit your kids down at six years of age and say, okay, now you're going to have to make a choice. We can either go to church or you can have lots of stuff. 
We know which way your kids would choose. Same way that mine would. I'll take the stuff. But God always puts them together. He says, put the spiritual things first and I'll load you down with stuff. God's not opposed to his people being rich. He's opposed to his people being covetous. So the floor shall be full of wheat and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten. The canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm. Now notice this phrase, my great army which I sent among you. It's easy to read that by saying I'll restore the years that the locust took because I sent them. And the palmer worm because I sent them too. And the caterpillar because I sent them too. But that's not what this means. My great army, the word army means strength, power, or resources. What he's saying is, I'll restore the years that the locust has eaten and that the canker worms took from you and that the palmer worm took from you and that the caterpillar took from you. My great army refers back to what's being restored, not the work of the caterpillar and so forth. My great army means my great resources, which I sent among you. Now, when did God send resources among his people? Remember in Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth. Literally, that could be translated resources to get resources. Now, if you think I'm putting an undue influence on this, or undue emphasis on this, I should say, Again, let me remind you that Haggai chapter 2 talks about the glory of God being connected with silver and gold. So he says, I'll restore the years. Now, as we said, this has a, a physical and specific reference to Israel being made a nation. To the rejoicing that they would have over their years of being dispersed. And regathered back into their own nation and their own land. But it also has a meaning for the church. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously with you. Another translation says that has done great things for you. Folks, you need to understand that the last days of the church are not doom and gloom. Barely holding out hoping we make it to the end. The last days of the church are days that we and all those around us will see that God has done great things for us. Not only in the display of his power, not only in healing and manifestations of spiritual gifts and miracles. But also, I believe, a miracle in the finances of this world. Now, I don't know how you're going to handle this. I don't know what you're going to do about this. I don't know if you're going to believe for it or not. But if you've been around here any period of time, you know that for years I've been confessing spectacular injuries. Lucky for you, I've been confessing it for you and me. <laughs> and you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that has dealt wondrously or done great things for you. And my people shall never be ashamed. 
I don't know what that phrase means to you, but it means a lot to me. My people shall never be ashamed. And you shall know. Everybody say no. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Remember, Paul talked about the church being real Israel. And that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And when God says something twice in a row like that, you need to pay attention. Folks, the end times are not anything for the church to be afraid of. The end times are times where the greatest blessings that have been known to man shall be revealed to the world. Because God doesn't want anybody to go through the tribulation. He knows there will be. He knows a lot of people will go through it. But he doesn't want anybody to have to. And nobody does have to. Anybody and everybody is capable of receiving Jesus before the rapture takes place. That's God's best. That's God's desire. But he's telling us ahead of time, that's not how it's going to be. Not on his part. He's doing everything he can to reach people. And he's going to do his finest work to reach people before the church leaves. That's the day that you and I live in. So many, for hundreds of years, the church has been afraid of the Antichrist. Oh, the Antichrist. The beast. The mark of the beast. What a joke that guy's going to be. The least in the body of Christ where he's still here on the earth. Could say you couldn't be here unless we were gone. And you're the best that the devil can do. We need to realize folks. We really do have authority in the name of Jesus. It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just a scripture. It's a reality. Amen. Amen. What wondrous things God's going to do before the church leaves. And then even after the church is gone. To show who he is. To reveal who the devil is. And to show who he is. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the revelation that we have. You said that these things were sealed up until the time when people would go to and fro and knowledge would be increased. Thank you that that's our time. Thank you, Father, for revealing to us who we are in Christ and the exceeding greatness of your power that belongs to us because we're your children. Father, I can't get away from the rain. I take from all these things, it's great information, but I'm not so concerned about what's going to happen during the tribulation. I care about what's going to happen while we're here now. So I thank you for your promise for the former rain and the latter rain, double rain. And the former rain was just a moderate rain. You said you'd give us showers of rain if we'd ask you. 
So we do ask you, Father, for the rain. Send the rain, Lord. Send the rain. I know these things have a timeline. I know they have a set time to begin. But Lord, send the rain for us. Not just us. On everybody that names the name of Jesus. But Father, there's got to be an advantage for believing and asking you for it just like you said. Send the rain, Lord. Send the healing rain. Send the healing power of God. In such a measure. That we've never seen it before. In greater measure than we see recorded in the book of Acts. Send the rain, Lord. Send the rain. Let there be moves of the Spirit of God in utterance. Tongues, interpretation of tongues and prophecy. Let there be a move of the Spirit of God in revelation. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits. And Lord, let there be a move of the Spirit of God in power. Gifts of healing. Working of miracles. Special faith. Lord, you said your people would never be ashamed because of the work that you do. Because you deal wondrously with us or do great things for us. Do those great things for us, Father, that the world may know that you're in our midst. That the world may know that the power of God is available for every man, every woman, every boy and every girl. And give us boldness, Father, to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Pierce heaven with the miracle working power of God. Send the rain, Lord. Send the rain. We ask you, Father, just as you told us, you said that if we would ask you for it, you'd give us the heathen for our inheritance. We ask you for the unsaved of the world as our inheritance. Send the rain, Lord. Bring about the precious fruit of the earth. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Say it with me. Thank you, Lord, for the rain being poured out upon us, being poured out upon all the earth to bring about the precious fruit of the earth. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. I love seeing how close we are to the end of all things. But I don't know about you. I'm not ready to go today. Don't misunderstand me. I want to be on the first load. But there's still a lot of work left to be done. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Till I come. Till I come. We've got a lot of occupying to do.
Thank God for the power of the Holy Ghost to do it. Amen? Say it with me. Jesus is coming soon. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.